Hello and welcome to the November instalment of The Shameless Book Club. This month, we took on our very first non-fiction book, a memoir from the now 28-year-old North Korean defector and activist Yeonmi Park. Published in 2015, Yeonmi tells the story of the first 22 years of her life, from her first 13 years growing up in North Korea as it was consumed by famine, to fleeing over the border to China, where she and her mother fell into the hands of human traffickers and finally to escaping to South Korea by traversing through the Gobi Desert through the night in search of a better life. It is a harrowing story of determination, of hope and trauma, and it feels almost unfathomable that someone this young could go through this much. There is so, so much to chat about today, but before we get into it all, may I introduce my co-hosts and co-readers, Annabelle Lee and Michelle Andrews. Welcome. Co-readers. I enjoyed that. Thank you. I think we are all co-readers. We read together. Guys, there is a lot to unpack today. I think there's a lot of depth and a lot of complexity to this book. It is by no means an easy read. There is a lot going on. But I thought the first place that we should start today is with, of course, our author, Yeonmi Park, because she started writing this book quite young. So let's give as much background on Yeonmi without ruining the entire book first. It's a hard, it's a hard assignment, <laughs> but you guys will do it. Annabelle. Yes. So firstly, I want to say this book was very hard to read, but easy to read in the same way. Like it was hard because of the content, mm. easy to read because it was written so clearly. Yeah, yeah, I flew through it. I think I was a little bit concerned in the first 30 pages because it was quite dense with historical facts and kind of like the context that you needed for the rest of the story. I was a little bit concerned. I read it in a single day. I really flew through it. And I think that's testament to how well this story was constructed. Totally. I think it's one of those things where it reminds me a little bit of like the story of Honeybee. I know that's like a fiction book, but when the subject matter is so dense, it is so clever when the writing is really simple and you can fly through it. Yes, exactly. So back to Yomi and why she wrote the book. If you've read the book, which I'm hoping you have, (laughs) at the end, Yomi writes about the speech that she made in 2014 at the One Young Summit, which did garner a lot of attention and also a lot of attention from critics who questioned the truth behind her story and kind of the inconsistent facts, I guess, that she had said throughout the course of like interviews after she fled to South Korea. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think this is something that will come up if you did any memoir, to be honest. It's like this is someone's retelling of their own life, but what is to say their own truth and their own memory lines up with other people's? Yeah, and I think this is such an interesting facet of talking about a memoir in a book club in that it is one person's retelling of events and it's very, very hard to sometimes get down to the absolute kernel of the truth. The accuracy of Yonmi Park's story has occasionally been called into question, but I think it's important for any detractors to be aware that a lot of those question marks arose before Yonmi told the world about her sex trafficking, human trafficking history. I think she was concealing part of her story to protect herself for so long. And when she gave us that final puzzle piece, a lot of things fell into place naturally. I do also think it was very clever for this book to be set up with that very famous quote from Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. I think that's very poignant. I think it's very telling. 
And I think it really beautifully collapses into what we all struggle with with memoir, that maybe some of this is embellished, maybe some of it is not 100% the truth, but enough of it is the truth that we can get a pretty accurate picture of what life in North Korea is like. Well, I just find it like absolutely impossible to tell a story where everyone else is going to read it and everybody's going to agree with your entire retelling of that story. I also think in her defence, knowing the amount of trauma that she went through and how much of it you would block out, there are absolutely going to be gaps in your memory. There are absolutely going to be things you tell, perhaps not perfectly. And so I think that is always really important to keep in mind. She said in an interview with The Guardian, I wrote it not only using my own memory, but using my mother's memory, my sister's memory, using the memories of the people who escaped with us. So lots of people had their input and it's only now that I feel free. I think when you are collating all of those memories, there's got to be a huge story here, a huge crux of the story that is true. Exactly. And when I was looking into this, I came across another fellow human rights activist and North Korean defector called Shin Dong-hyuk, and he wrote a biography that he later admitted was not wholly truthful. He explained in a Facebook post that the trauma was too difficult to relive. So he said, I altered some details that I thought wouldn't matter. I didn't want to tell exactly what happened in order not to relive these painful moments all over again. And this makes so much sense to me because it might not even be a conscious decision for authors to embellish the truth. Mm. But if you've carried all this shame and trauma for so long, it would be so difficult to re-dig up those stories. Yeah. And sometimes I don't even think it's embellishing. Sometimes I think it's simply smoothing over Mm. the grittier, more difficult aspects in order to survive, which is also part of this book. I found one passage from Yonmi Park's prologue to be really telling. She wrote, some of the images reappeared with terrible clarity. Others were hazy or scrambled like a deck of cards spilled on the floor. The process of writing has been been the process of remembering and of trying to make sense out of those memories. We need to keep in mind this is a woman who was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder after everything that she experienced. Some of these memories are from childhood. We all know, thinking back to our own childhoods or trauma that we experienced earlier in life, the details slip away sometimes. So we have to be, I think, a little bit generous when we talk about her story. Yeah, and one thing I thought from the outset with this book is I was a bit nervous to do a memoir. Like, we've never done one before and I wondered how you rate a book that is ostensibly about someone's life and how do you separate that book from the story. I think for the purpose of today, we are going to take the story as it was told and that's how we're going to do it. I also think from the outset, it would be remiss of us to ignore the fact that, yes, Yonmi Park has said some interesting things politically in the last few years. She has an interesting reputation in terms of what she said on podcasts like Joe Rogan saying she wanted to be, and I quote, the enemy of the woke. I also think it's important that we put all of that to the side for the moment and take this story as she's told it in the book. All right, guys, let's start with where Yonmi Park started the book with life in North Korea. I think for me, shamefully, there was so much I didn't know about North Korea. And I felt, as I said, a bit of shame about that. But then the other part of my brain was like, well, there are so few people telling their stories about their time in North Korea. Maybe it's not that surprising that so many of us don't know exactly what happened. Annabelle, how did you feel with the first part of the book, the first third? I mean, it feels so ignorant to say that I consumed the first few pages having to continually remind myself that it wasn't a work of fiction. Like it was just that devastating to read. But even though the first third of the book was, of course, completely eye-opening and heartbreaking to be shown how this controlling system, I guess, ravaged Yonmi's family and so many families, it was also really informative, like a really informative 
read and it felt like it was kind of intentionally written to thoroughly inform an audience that has been kept in the dark about North Korea's living conditions, which I really did appreciate as someone who just had no idea. Mm, Yeah, I think what stood out to me were all the tiny little details about how this propaganda machine infiltrates day-to-day life. Like I had no idea that North Korean children are raised with the idea or the notion that the Kims can read their minds, like that level of influence and that level of fear is just terrifying. I also found the stuff about how far behind North Korea is compared to the rest of the world really fascinating. The fact that electricity is so rarely working or functional or on, the fact that they don't have any internet at all took me by surprise as well. I think I was running under the assumption that in North Korea, the internet was similar to China in that it was state-run and state-controlled and therefore another kind of arm of the propaganda machine. The fact they didn't have it at all really drummed home the idea that North Korean people are living in the 60s or 70s. Well, that is what I had to keep reminding myself as I was reading this book is like you were growing up at essentially the same time as Yonmi Park. Like I was constantly imagining this as like the 60s or 70s and had to constantly remind myself that no, she was of the same age that I I was growing up. I also think for me, it really solidified the difference between surviving and living. Like we take for granted all day, every day that we never have to wake up and think about how to survive. We just kind of do. We are able to make choices about how to live. I think the crux of our days is how do we keep ourselves happy and how do we keep ourselves fulfilled? And for people like you and me and her family, it's like, no, all I'm thinking about all day, every day is food. And I hadn't really read anything Again, shamefully, that kind of describes in such vivid detail what it's like to live through a famine and to always be hungry and how totally traumatising that would be. Mm, Yeah, the hunger stuff was so heart-wrenching and because it spanned for so many years, it's just like this quiet desperation inside of you to be like, just get food into these people's stomachs. Like the continual talk about how they were physically wasting away and how they had no energy to kind of do anything other than survive was really powerful as well. And you realise, I think, throughout this book, and it's a testament to the ghostwriter and to Yonmi Park, you realise that this is an important function of a dictatorship. You need the people to be hungry. You need them to be starving. You need them to be struggling to survive because if they're not doing those things, they're thinking about the powers that control them and they're actively rallying against them. It's it's heartbreaking to think that hunger is a really important tool for a dictatorship to use against its own people. Yeah, the descriptions of hunger throughout the book, but specifically when Yonmi was a child, was so incredibly heartbreaking because we grew up making decisions or being like our decisions were fueled by, I don't know, really frivolous small things, but hers was like for a bowl of rice or a grain of rice. And it was just like, yeah, so different from our reality. I also think there are a couple of things that really struck me, of things that we take for granted as well. It's like, you know, Yonmi's dad spent seven to eight months a year away from the family in order to kind of stay alive and to provide for the family. Like even time spent with family is not guaranteed. And the other part about her dad being diagnosed with cancer and they'd never even heard of cancer because nobody kind of lives long enough or gets sick enough to even get cancer because they're taken by things so much earlier. Like I felt quite almost shaken by that fact because I was like, of course. And I think the other thing is like it's really easy to look back at history or even today to look at any kind of modern dictatorship and wonder how groupthink manifests, like how people can be coached and brainwashed to believe that they're 
leaders can control the weather, as we mentioned. Like stories like this are so important because terrifyingly, I think it can be done so seamlessly if a leader wants to. I have an excerpt that I wanted to read on this because it was actually towards the end of the book. And I thought this was a really, really clever and smart observation from Yeonmi Park. She was talking about how when she got to South Korea, she was learning all these new words. And she said, the vocabulary in South Korea was so much richer than the one I had known. And when you have more words to describe the world, you increase your ability to think complex thoughts. In North Korea, the regime doesn't want you to think and they hate subtlety. Everything is either black or white with no shades of grey. For instance, in North Korea, the only kind of love you can describe is for the leader. I was starting to realise that you can't really grow and learn unless you have a language to grow within. And I was like, oh my God, of course, if you didn't even know that you could use the word love to describe the love you have for your family or your friends, how were you meant to question anything when you're not given words to know anything? Yeah, I think that passage was so powerful. And I think it would be very arrogant for any white person in particular to read this story and think that their community is simply above this happening no, to them. No, well, that's the terrifying thing. It's like no one's immune to this. Like absolutely not, especially when you're restricted in the way that you speak and the way you communicate. Yeah. And of course, in the way you think, I think the exploration of naivety was really powerful throughout this memoir. I also found this passage earlier in the book, Zara. So you took one from the end, I took one from the very beginning. This is on page 34, discussing Yonmi's mother's kind of adoration for the regime earlier in life. The passage reads, she knew only what the regime taught her and she remained a proud and pure revolutionary. And because she had a poet's heart, she felt an enormous emotional connection to the official propaganda. She sincerely believed that North Korea was the centre of the universe and that Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il had supernatural powers. She believed that Kim Il-sung caused the sun to rise and that Kim Jong-il was born in a cabin on our sacred Mount Pegtu. His arrival was marked by a double rainbow and a bright new star in the sky. It is so interesting to realise that people purely believe that and truly believe that. But it's also a harsh reminder that any of us are capable of that. And in our own lives, we probably often fall into groupthink. We often fall victim to our own naivety because that is the human way. I also would like to read a passage, may I? Yes, you may. So this one is about a term that Yonmi coined doublethink, which I guess is much like cognitive dissonance. And she wrote... North Koreans have two stories running in their heads at all times, like trains on parallel tracks. One is what you were taught to believe. The other is what you see with your own eyes. It wasn't until I escaped to South Korea and read a translation of George Orwell's 1984 that I found a word for this peculiar condition, doublethink. This is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in your mind at the same time and somehow not go crazy. And it's kind of like she's seeing famine and all these terrible things happen right in front of her yet she's being told a completely false narrative and it's she's like, in a utopia exactly and you just don't know what to believe so you just have to like succumb to this idea of double think I guess that they can both exist did that passage make you guys think of times in your life where you have fallen victim to double think because I certainly read that and was like I have done that for sure in what way just in my own life where I've held a certain belief to be true I've been taught a certain thing by my parents or by whatever and then I've witnessed the opposite happen and I've almost just, instead of erasing my original belief and adopting the new one, I've found a way to make both fit, even though they are completely incompatible with each other. Well, it feels very much to me like the most natural response to trauma, I think, mm. to be able to see two things as true and hold them as true at the same time, because as the title of the book says, you do that in order to live. Like mm. for, for you and me and her family, like you have to do that in order to survive. If you let those thoughts start ruminating in your mind, I don't think you'd be able to survive. There is a lot 
Still to come, the trauma doesn't even end in North Korea. We are going to hear all about her fleeing to China in just a second. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Alrighty, team. I think for me, I wonder if you agree with this, but once the North Korea chapter of Yeonmi's life was over, I was like, I can't believe that I know now that there's an entire another chapter of her life where she's going to experience years and years of trauma. Mm. Like that just feels so beyond what anyone should go through. Mish, talk to me about the China chapter, about when Yeonmi finally landed in China and how you felt about those first sort of few pages. Yeah, I mean, those first few pages really made an earlier statement of I was willing to risk my life for a bowl of rice ring true. I think, again, you saw that real hunger motivation, those quick decisions being made that made you want to scream, but also made so much sense at the same time. Like you literally witnessed a mother and a daughter sell themselves or be privy to themselves being sold in order just to fill their stomachs. And as much desperation I felt in that moment, it was also this bizarre relief because they were finally eating and they were able to get this food into their bodies. But you also knew or could kind of forebode the extreme pain and trauma that was about to wreak havoc upon them again. Yeah, that moment where Yeonmi and her mother are being priced like items based mm. on like their age and their worth, I guess. Reading how humiliating it was for them to endure that, I think Yomi says it was like she was caught between fear and hope. And it just seems like that's where she was caught for like most of her story, which is just so sad. Like it's truly awe-inspiring though that she had that hope and that hope played such a huge role in her story. Yeah, and I can't imagine crossing the border into China, going through that really terrifying experience and then realising, fuck, did I make a bit of a mistake here? Like I can't imagine what that sick feeling would even feel like. There's a really interesting passage on page 109 about having no concept of critical thinking that I also think is really important here for context about how people like Yonmi and her mother find themselves at the mercy of human traffickers. She said, looking back, I wonder how we all could have been so naive. None of us even knew the concept of human trafficking and couldn't imagine anything so evil as selling other people. And we weren't really capable of critical thinking because we had been trained not to ask questions. I actually thought if we could just cross the river without being arrested or shot by the soldiers, I would be okay. But then when you are so hungry and desperate, you are willing to take any risk in order to live. Mm. Again, I think it might come back to that point you made about doublethink. It's like perhaps they knew it all wasn't you know, really well, but you're kind of happy to hold both of those thoughts in the same time because you're just trying to survive. Yeah. One of the sadder aspects of this story as well was when Yeonmi's mother was being taken away. Like they were saying their goodbyes to each other, potentially for the last time. Like they didn't really know when they would see each other again. Her mother was going to be sold to a farmer and she turned to her and said, be a good girl, clean the house every day and cook for these people so that they can see the value of keeping you here. Like, for a 13-year-old girl to be left in that situation and go, I have to prove my worth to these people. I have to stay alive. Otherwise, they're going to discard of me like I'm rubbish. I think when you were reading stuff like that and then you had the story of the 2008 Beijing Olympics interwoven throughout, I almost hated myself because, like, obviously the Beijing Olympics is not directly about any of us at this table, but it is a representation of the developed world. It is a representation of the kind of shiny bells and whistles of that kind of Olympic culture. And to see how that culture interwove with Yeonmi's experience, I was like, it is insane that this is the same universe. It'd be so easy to go... 
that's a different world. That is like an alien culture that's nothing to do with us. But this is the one world and we all have something to do with it. Yeah. As you guys were saying before, you keep forgetting what time that Yomi's story took place in. That was like a huge moment for me when she spoke about the Beijing Olympics that I was like, oh my God, that was so recently. And we were like, I don't know, at school doing fuck all. It's just. And we were all her age. I remember watching the Beijing Olympics at home in my parents' house on the couch. I remember being sick for that time. I remember how young I was and I was playing like club netball on my weeknights and going to high school and learning basic maths or whatever. Like to think that that was my experience and that's her experience is very sobering. It was like a big slap in the face, I think, to have something that's so modern, I guess, and quote-unquote well-regarded as the Olympics to be sitting in stark contrast to her experience and to her life. When she was kidnapped by Huang at 14 or 15, I think, I I couldn't quite remember the age. I think that maybe that was one downfall of this book is I wish it was signposted a little bit better with her age. You do love some signposting. I was like, just tell me exactly how old you are at this point, but that's okay. I couldn't believe how she was finding herself in the most adult scenarios, but not even just like adult scenarios, like facing near-death experiences all the time, mm. like kidnapped and locked up in this random apartment. That That's an experience hardly anyone would have. And that was just one tiny experience in this whole litany of experience she had in her life. I also think what she actually did really well in this book was detail her very complex relationship with Hong Wei. Yes. When she was speaking to The Guardian about how many years on, how she feels about that relationship, she said, I was going to kill him. I said I would never forgive him and that there was nothing he could do to make me feel like he could justify what he did. But people can make mistakes. He had lost his own parents. He knew what it was to live without your parents. So he knew what I was going through. I can't hate him anymore, but everything is complex. I can't say exactly what I feel. How do you guys feel about him? Because I really... God, like you witness him rape her and do horrible, awful things to her. Like he slapped her across the face and was physically abusive and disgusting. But he was also the man who financially supported her and then reunited her with her mother and her father. It was one of the most complicated relationships I have ever read in any kind of book, let alone a real life relationship that took place in reality. How do you feel about Hong Wei, Annabelle? I don't even know. I feel like if... Yonmi doesn't even know how she feels about him. I had no idea what I was supposed to feel, but it did seem like he had a lot of love for her and that she also had some love back. Mm. But obviously that does not excuse any of the actions that took place. I do think, though, that Yonmi says that she had bad critical thinking skills. It seems like she has a great mind and like a great way to justify certain things in her mind and put everything into perspective and that she has quite a clear idea of what she believes to be right and wrong. Yeah, and I think here it's like I don't even think we have to sort of say, oh, I don't excuse those actions and Mm. sort of like, but I do appreciate that she loved him. I think it's like the only thing I really felt was I have total empathy for however Yonmi wants to consider this relationship. Like that is totally up to her. And if she says it's complicated and she has complicated feelings, then I totally believe that. Like I can't imagine how confusing that would be. Mm, it wasn't the only detail in this story that I struggled to kind of wrap my head around. I felt huge sympathy for Yonmi's father for some of the book, but then I also found 
myself feeling really confused by other things that he did, particularly the very brief story on page 152 and 153, which read, the teenage girls who shared the apartment with us were convinced that my father could help them get to China too. They were very poor and desperate. He told them he wasn't able to help them, but they continued to beg, telling him they couldn't live in North Korea anymore. Finally, my father agreed to help them escape on the condition that they tell their mother before they left. He gave them Yong A's address and the girls left through her without telling their mother. They knew she would never have let them go. When she discovered that her daughters had left, she blamed my father. He later told my mother that Yong A had given him about $13 worth of Chinese money for her sending the girls. I'm trying to be compassionate to a man who was living in the egregious conditions that we have spent half an hour discussing already. But I did find this example of Yonmi's father trafficking young girls to be very difficult to reconcile in my mind. And I wonder if maybe Yonmi is struggling to also figure out what exactly happened then. But that explanation of he said he would only traffic them if they told their mother, they didn't tell their mother, they went anyway, and he profited money from it, even though it's a very nominal amount to us here in Australia. That story to me was a bit of a thorn in my side for the rest of the book because I couldn't make sense of it. It's really interesting. Again, I don't think I can possibly fathom what any of them were going through. But I think for me where I sit on it is that if I'm going to afford as much compassion as I possibly can for you and me and her involvement in human trafficking because she was trying to survive and her mother was trying to survive, then I'm probably happy to extend that same compassion to their father, not knowing what he was going through or the lengths that he needed to go in order to stay alive. Like I think in this scenario... I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt, but even saying that out loud, it's like this is a guy that trafficked women. So I, I don't know. But I, yeah. I think this is the kind of book where it's like there is no simple answers. Mm. We're talking about a regime here that deliberately starves its people. We're talking about a regime that literally cuts them off from the rest of the world and all they're doing is just trying to stay alive. And I don't understand that experience and I probably never will understand that experience and I don't know what depths people will go and the bad things they will do in order to survive. Yeah, like even though it is happening in our world, it feels like another world and we have not even touched any kind of experience like Mm. it so we would never understand what is going through their minds. Mm. Also, I feel like when I read that passage, it seemed to me like Yormi didn't think that her father had any sort of ill intent behind his actions. Like if he had found himself in a bad, dark place, it was kind of like an accident or he wasn't aware of it. Yeah, I understand that. I think I had, of course, I have complete sympathy for Yormi herself being involved in human trafficking because she was a 13-year-old girl, number one. She Mm. had no power. I think I just struggled to reconcile that with a man in his 40s doing the same thing to teenage girls who didn't have any power either. Oh, yeah, I think that's totally fair. Uh, Let's talk about South Korea now. Let's talk about freedom, quote-unquote freedom, because eventually, as we know, Yeonmi did cross the Gobi Desert in the middle of the night with a group of people, reached the border of Mongolia and got into South Korea. I mean, it's pretty hard to stomach that storyline in and of itself. Like, I was terribly nervous reading it, knowing full well she survived. But again, it's like these constant near-death experiences that they have, these constant sliding doors moments that they have where the group behind them didn't survive the crossing. Mm. Annabelle, I'll start with you with South Korea and when Yeonmi actually crossed the border and arrived. How did you experience those pages? Well, this is like the first time I've really read about freedom like this, freedom so closely tied to trauma. I'd never really wrapped my head around the fact that you can't just unlive the trauma that you've just Mm. escaped from and move on. 
And moving forward also means like accepting a life that is so vastly different from the one that you've been made to feel comfortable with, which would be very exhausting and confusing. And that's what you ended up reading on the pages. Yeah, that was really difficult. I think I wanted to believe that she would cross the border into South Korea. She would go through all those checks by the government to make sure she wasn't a North Korean spy. And then she would live this like very fruitful luxurious life straight away and you know that it just can't be that way like it's so difficult to deprogram what you have been brainwashed to believe from the earliest memories that you have and I think that was interesting as well that she did have that double think of sitting in those university lectures and hearing about the North Korean regime hearing about the Kims and still part of her brain going that's wrong like they're telling you the wrong thing and having that instinct to defend the very people who tortured her. But then also understanding so totally or not even understanding but appreciating that she would sit there being like, but I don't know who to trust anymore. Mm. I've been told one thing my whole life and now you're telling me another. Who are you to say that you're any different to that? And it's like, I don't know how that doesn't mess you up forever Mm. because I don't know where you put your trust forever after that. Yeah, it would be very, very hard to be Yonmi Park even now. Like obviously this book has sold very well. She's living in America. She has a son. Like her life is vastly different. But it's a very difficult equation to say, well, you can take these things out of someone's life, but the effect of them is ongoing and it is there for a very long time. One of my favourite passages that really spoke to the difference between surviving and living was on page 186. I wonder if you guys saw this. It's a bit of a long one, if you'll allow me to read it out. She wrote, I'm not much of a singer, but I've always loved my mother's voice. When I was young, she sang to me while she was cleaning the house or putting me to sleep. Her voice was the most beautiful, warmest sound I've ever known. Hearing her sing again broke down a wall I had built around my heart. For nearly two years, I'd felt all of my five senses were numbed. I could not feel, smell, see, hear, or taste the world around me. If I had allowed myself to experience those things in all their intensity, I might have lost my mind. If I had allowed myself to cry, I might never have been able to stop. So I survived, but I never felt joy and I never felt safe. Now, as I listened to my mother sing the old songs, that numbness melted away. I was overwhelmed by the boundless love I felt for her and also the intense fear of losing her. That sense of dread hollowed out my chest like a physical pain. She was everything to me. She was all I had. That numbness. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think any of us would ever be able to fathom. I think for me, the other part of this was when you and me, her mother, and that group of defectors, I guess, crossed the border into South Korea and were finally taken to a, I guess, detention centre there. Processing centre. Yeah, a processing yeah. centre. And this was a passage that I wanted to read. As soon as the SUV pulled through the gates, all eight of us were escorted into a one-story building that looked like a barracks or a jail. The women were taken one by one into a room and ordered by a female soldier to take off all our clothes. She even searched our hair to see if we were carrying money or drugs. She took all the Chinese yuan my mother had left on her. They treated us like criminals instead of refugees. I don't think anyone could or should be able to read that and not consider our own circumstance in Australia, how hardline our borders have been, how terrible, terrible we are with refugees. I mean, we have a prime minister who has a boat on his desk that said, I stopped these. Like that just instills so much anger inside of me when you think about, yes, this is Yonmi's experience, but this is also the experience of people on our shore too. And people that we often turn our backs to in Mm. Australia, like people flick the channel when it comes up on the news or it's not covered on the news at all, unless it's maybe on the ABC or Channel 10. Like I rarely see Channel 7 or Channel 9 even talk about this. And it's something that people in Australia really try to dodge. But I think you read a story like this and you think 
this is happening to people all the time in our processing centres. And although the South Korean processing centre or detention centre sounded incredibly harsh, knowing what I know about our detention centres, we are even worse. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the most remarkable indictments on our own psychological processing, I guess, that so many Australians are willing to consider that fleeing and seeking asylum is the fault of the refugee, Mm. that these are scenarios and experiences they create for themselves. Bring on themselves. Yeah, Yeah. rather than just are thrust into and have no power over. Like that is a bizarre way to think about asylum seekers and refugees, but it's how so many people do. Yeah, it's quite sickening, isn't it? The way some Australians consider other human beings. There's this line in the book and it's even when you think you're alone, the birds and mice can hear you whisper. And it was mentioned at the beginning and at the end of the book. At the beginning, it was said by Yonmi's mother, who was kind of saying, be aware, be always on the watch, know what's happening at all times. And it kind of instilled this fear in Yonmi. And it was mentioned at the end again, when Yonmi no longer had to have that fear 24-7, but the fear was still present and it was still there. And it's absolutely like heartbreaking to imagine what that is like, Mm. just having that fear be so much a part of you for so much of your life. Mm. And so interesting that she has that fear but is still so vocal and so prominent in the activism space now. I think this book taught me a lot about the support that we need to give people who have been through trauma like this to get back on their feet. Like it's very, very difficult obviously for anyone to bounce back or come back to some sense of normality after living in such impoverished conditions. But the fact that the mother entered a domestically violent relationship with an awful man and we had that scene where she almost died and was losing all that blood in the hospital and then couldn't afford to get a taxi ride home or a bus ride so she walked. This does not end when the person flees and the country they flee to need to give them exceptional levels of support in order for them to thrive. But they can thrive. Yonmi Park is testament to the fact that when they thrive, they thrive exceptionally well. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I want to ask you both about how you consider the book in its entirety and what you would rate it and (laughs) all of those fun things. Annabelle, I might start with you. How did you enjoy the entire experience? I know we've unpacked so much of the little details of the story and what we learned and what really kind of, I don't know, hit our heart a little bit. But how did you find the experience of reading the book and what would you give it out of five? I was pleasantly surprised just because I don't read many memoirs and autobiographies. So I actually found the first, I'd say 20 pages a bit slow for me, but then I whizzed through it. I really, really, really adored it. I feel like there were parts of the book that I felt like I needed more explanation, but that could just be because, you know, it's a world so far from what I'm used to. So I will rate it a four out of five. Interesting. Michelle Andrews. I think this is the most important book we have done on the book club. I think it is a book that I would recommend to everyone in my life. There's not a single person that I know that I wouldn't tell to read this book because I think it's very important. I would give it a five. Nice. I love that. I had a similar experience reading this book to both of you. I think I probably found it a bit slow, maybe for a tiny bit longer than you guys. I was really struggling to kind of like find my feet in it. But when you do find your feet in it, like, boy, does it really fly. As you both said, like, you can really smash it out in a day. I will give it a four. I think it's a totally remarkable story. 
I do think there were tiny details that I felt a tiny bit lost in mm. again, which is no fault on the writer or on you and me. It's just a hard story to tell in a really comprehensive way. Yeah, and a big hat tip to the ghostwriter that Penguin paired up with Yonmi Park. Her name is Marianne Vollers, and I think she did an exceptional job with this book. And they clearly made a really powerful duo together because it's a really wonderful read. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for reading our November instalment of the Shameless Book Club. Next month, we are reading the much-hyped novel from Miranda Cowley-Heller called The Paper Palace. It is already a New York Times bestseller and is described as a magnificent literary debut about the myriad loves that make up our life. So what's it all about? Here's a bit from the blurb. Before anyone else is awake on a perfect August morning, Elle Bishop heads out for a swim in the glorious freshwater pond below the Paper Palace, the gently decaying summer camp in the backwoods of Cape Cod where her family has spent every summer for generations. Then she dives beneath the surface of the freezing water to the shocking memory of the sudden, passionate encounter she had the night before up against the wall outside the house as her husband and mother chatted to the dinner guests inside. That is juicy! (laughs) Over the next 24 hours, Elle will have to decide between the life she's made with her much-loved husband, Peter, and the life she imagined would be hers with her childhood love, Jonas, if a tragic event hadn't forever changed the course of their lives. Guys, we cannot wait to jump into this one. I'm really, really excited. As always, team, if you want to support the show, come and follow us on Instagram at The Shameless Book Club. We have reviews of other books on there. We have the odd book meme from Michelle Andrews. We have (laughs) our ratings on there. That's where all our book content lives, so come and find us. Yeah, guys, thank you so, so much. I look forward to all the sex scenes next month. Oh, yeah. You sickos. You absolute sickos. Bye. Bye. Toodles. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.